Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. I live music. Morning, noon, a whole night. Everything else is just icing on the cake, you dig? I do. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night special. John Kelly here, but tonight I don't pick the music. We get a guest to pick the music. And tonight my guest is Una Monaghan, who is a composer, a harpist and a sound artist. And uh, Una's with me in the studio. I'm glad to have you here, Una. I've been curious about your work for some time. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. So, Una, I can tell from your accent you're not from Donnybrook, Dublin 4. I'm not. I'm from West Belfast, Andersonstown. Andy Town. Andy Town, if you want to correct me. <laughs> so if, if, you say, if you say you're from Andersonstown, is that is that you being posh? I don't know. I, th- I guess I've tried to say things how they're written, but uh, I've definitely been corrected and my sisters have been corrected on more than one occasion. Yeah. So you were growing up in Belfast then. 1980s Belfast was still a tough place. Yeah, although I suppose at the time I didn't quite realise it. It's more every day now thinking how things were then that you would realise and I think everyone has their own wee interesting stories that happened to them that they didn't notice at the time, but maybe now you put in context yeah. on how we are now and you realise, well, if that were to happen now, I would really find that strange. <laughs> I, know. I know. So this was uh, Anderson's Town, 1980s, and I'm curious to know how you get from there to being a, a sound artist and and uh, composer. And But we'll start with the harp, because... I presume there was some access to playing the harp in Belfast. There was after a while. Um, Mummy says that, well, there was, a, there was a piano in our house and I think we were storing it for somebody and that piano was still there. So <laughs> you, never, you never played it, no? Well, I, I think that's my earliest musical memory was there, were this, there was this piano book and it was the first way to learn how to read music and there were wee imps in it. I think it was Thompson Piano Tutor. And so, Mammy, it was, you know, one thumb, C, 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 one thumb. And I remember that, Mammy just helping us learn how to how to do that. But um, my two older sisters um, and three younger sisters and a brother. And so the older one played the fiddle and then the pipes. And Mammy said, well, what would you like to play? And apparently I just said the harp. And it wasn't like to play, it was I'm going to play the harp. And so that was a bit of an issue because there was no harp in sight and no harp teacher in sight. And... Uh, we're not quite sure why that happened. I think it it might be something to do with the size of a harp in an orchestra. If you come in the back room of an orchestra and there's a harp on the stage, yeah. you can hear the noise, and if you're only we, all you can see is the harp. So, But had you actually seen a harp uh, in real life before you decided think, you wanted to play one? I think that's what happened. Yeah. I think we came in the back of a school or maybe an orchestra concert of some description in the back row, and all I could see was this big gold thing, but I could hear the noise. Yeah. So I said, what's that? And they said, a harp. And I said, all right. So maybe it's that I thought, that's the noise that came out of it, and kind of latched on to it at that point. But um, 
there there wasn't one around. So Mammy kept saying, "Well, that's nice. Here's a fiddle," or "That's nice. Here's a here's a whistle." And it was only in 1992 when there was a big bicentenary of the Harp Festival in Belfast that there was a week of lessons that a beginner could go to. Oh. It was run by Janet Harbison. And Mammy said, thanks be to God, we can get this child a harp. <laughs> so I rented one then um, during that week. And now, the, the harp that you started to play on, was it was it an Irish harp or was it a concert harp? Yeah, Tiny we rented Irish harp yeah. for that week. And then... Jan Mulliart, who's a maker in Meath, uh, gave a harp to be given to a beginner who, who showed promise at that festival, and that's how I got my first harp. Wow. I and did you take to it immediately? Loved it. Right. Yeah, and I, I just haven't really stopped since. And is it a complicated instrument to learn? The thing with a harp is that you're not encouraged to develop good technique early on because the instrument kind of plays itself. It's really hard to make a horrible noise on a harp. Like, if you're playing the fiddle, you've got issues there for a while in terms of getting yeah. tone. Yeah. And people around you have to put up with some awful noises before you'll get good ones. Mm-hmm. Whereas a harp, as soon as you play that, you know, it, it sounds lovely. And so the problem with learning the harp is making yourself do it well whenever it already sounds good. All ah, right. I right. think. And what about tuning? Is it big issues with tuning with harps, isn't it? Depends on the harp. Um, mm-hmm. They settle. Right. So I've had mine a good few years now, and it it's pretty good. Well, you mentioned Janet Harbison. Maybe we'll start with her. Um, a name I know from my time in Belfast did a lot of amazing work, amazing kind of work. on her own, really. Yeah, um, really formative in terms of my musical education. Uh, it was, I mean, there's such a lot of things I got out of playing with the harp orchestra at that time, and I mean, unison playing for a start. It was the first time... You know, the only time that you're going to hear 25 to 30 harps all at once. And I, you, that sound of multiple harps, and I later understood multiple instruments of any kind, but multiple harps at once really struck me, has never left me. And you can put that in different acoustics as well. But even the rehearsals for that harp orchestra used to just really affect me, the, the sound of many harps at once, even before you start arranging it. And what age were you when you joined this orchestra? I think I would have been 13. 13. And she organised tours. Like, that was the first time I'd been on a boat, a plane, a hotel. You know, there were things outside of the music that really got me too, but... And, and it was the first time sound engineering hit me. So there was a lot to do with the harp orchestra that, that was a first for me. So what are we going to hear in a AMRA? Yes, this is a piece from uh, Column Kill, which is, I think Janet wrote in, in 1997, and it was uh, to commemorate the birth of St. Columba. So this suite uh, was a, a suite of music with soprano and choirs, and this piece is one of the harp pieces. Janet Harbison and the Belfast Harp Orchestra.
music there uh, the Belfast Harp Orchestra Janet Harbison there Amra the Harper's Elegy from uh, the Columbus Suite and it's the first choice tonight of Una Monaghan who's with me Una's from uh, from Belfast she's a harpist she's a composer and a sound artist and we have a lot of stuff to get into before the programme's out but we're back in the early days in Belfast and you, you took a notion of the harp your mother did her did your best and fi- did her best and finally got you one how did you get this harp moved around the place? Well, my harp lived in a sleeping bag for long enough because it came with no cover. So on the on the back, the shoulder of that harp, there's multiple sleeping bag zip marks. Right. <laughs> Still to now, etched into the wood. Um, but after I started learning with Janet then, she lived in Hollywood and we had no car at the time. So my auntie would come and pick up the harp at eight in the morning on her way to work, leave it in the garden at Janet's house. Janet would come out and get it and bring it in when she got up. She'd leave it in the garden? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just a wee short period of time between, because my auntie was going really early to work. <laughs> and so that was brought in, and then the harp was in Janet's house for me to get a train from Belfast after school and have the lesson, and then we would get a train back with a hot sausage roll on the way home, which to me was the best part of the whole thing. And uh, then my auntie would bring the harp home on the way home again. Wow. And it was was your focus in completely on traditional music? At that time, on the harp it was, uh, I did also start to play violin, possibly before the harp. Um, I find the violin, the bow hold, to be really hard. Mm. And I later came back to it as a traditional player, tried to. (laughs) Uh, Somewhat because, you know, bringing a harp around and actually fitting in in traditional contexts was at the time we were difficult. The opportunities, what opportunities did you have to play music on a harp at the time? Because, you you know, you wouldn't see a harp at a session, but then you would have been too young to be at a proper session anyway, I guess. Yeah, I mean, by the time I was 15, 16, I was just going to the sessions that were around about. There was one the Roddy McCauley Club at the top of the Andersonstown Road, um, different ones in town, uh, in with Loch Lee, in the Culterland, on the Falls Road, in St Gall's. So there, there were sessions for kids, um, I was playing in the flas. I was going to whatever festivals I w- was able to manage. Um, and is the harp welcomed into those scenarios, into a session? Okay, it definitely is now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was never unwelcome that I could see, but what it was, was it was obvious. You yeah. know, you can't sneak in with a harp. And sometimes in sessions, there's a lot of sneaking in goes on. By our own players, mostly. So, yeah, I find it frustrating that you couldn't wander in the back door. Yeah. If you arrived, people noticed you'd arrived. And then the worst thing was, well, maybe it was lovely. They were going to ask you to play something on your own. Yeah. Mostly because they couldn't hear you. And then sometimes they felt it was kind of nice to ask you to play on your own. But then the knowledge that at the age of 15 that you're going to a session and you're likely to be asked to play on your own, it's a bit daunting. So I played, tried to play fiddle and then played a bit of concertina as well. And you're only, you know, when you were still 13, 14 and so on, um, I'm thinking of all your, your pals on the Andersonstown Road, the people you were at school with. Um, were you were you on your own or were there others with a similar similar musical interests? There was a lot of traditional music about the place. Mm. Um, I mean, I would have played in Common Cools in my school. There was great music in Bunskull Football First Year where I grew up. Great singing tradition and Irish language singing tradition. Um Paddy Davy ran a whole series of, of music classes from his house. Uh, there was great Belfast traditions of, of musicians. I suppose at the time, uh, because everything was kind of based in your area in Belfast, you knew the ones that were around. Mm. Um, and then there were seven of us in the house, so you were going to be playing with your sisters and, and my brother. 
Um, well, you weren't uh, you weren't lured away by the bright lights of the local disco and all the rest of it, were you? God, tried like yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't really have much access to that kind of music. And as far as I remember it, but we didn't really have much to play music on, bar the instruments. Like right, no record player. There wasn't in the house. A, yeah. no, not in the house. And so all of my music was 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 more in person, and th- this had an effect on on what I knew of music as I got older because I, I I find it hard to understand what era different pieces of music were from because I'd no I'd no real appreciation of, of when it came out. Uh-huh. So I would hear a piece of music I loved and I'd I'd just automatically presume it was from back in the day because most of the because I'd missed out on that knowledge in a way. Yeah. Which meant that I sometimes missed out on going to live gigs from people presuming that weren't touring anymore when in actual fact looking back now music I really liked had only come out the previous month and I just didn't know that yeah so it's kind of it's getting like that again now because the kids are are picking up music without any context you know they hear one track here and one track here and one track from one album they like a song they don't necessarily go and buy all the albums by that person so that that can't whereas I grew up in an era where you you know if you liked a particular artist you went and followed that you yeah. bought every album, you know, you kind of pursued it in a very strict way and you you, you needed to know who was when and where and how. Yeah. You needed all that. Well, But I, there was I a did. chronology there that maybe came, yeah. came with with the music that you were interested in. Mm. I mean, I've, I do follow people. Mm. Sort of, I followed the Beach Boys kind of literally. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, then where did you hear the Beach Boys then? If you had no record player in the house. I knew Mammy really liked them, but she didn't have any records but I knew that when she was young that was the band she liked but okay. I knew that as a concept without knowing what they sounded like and I remember we were sitting in a car in Gidor uh, in Donegal and we were just waiting on something probably waiting on someone to get out of a music lesson it happened a lot and uh, Caroline No came on the radio and Mammy said that's the Beach Boys and I song. listened really intently mm. to the words of that music which is really sad you know mm. where did your long hair go and, and that was, the, that was my, the first time I remember hearing them when I was middle teenager and I got really into them when I was 17 to 20 uh, with two other Belfast musicians, Jeff Gatt and Dominic O'Neill. And we used to kind of follow them about then. Uh, I've met Brian Wilson from sitting in a London underground car park after his gig at the festival hall, oh, just really, on my own. Right, you really did but I didn't. But I didn't know if he was coming out. He just sort of wandered out of the lift. That's where his car was parked. I was sitting underneath the hall sort of thinking... Whoa! What was that? Like it was a, it was one of the gigs. It was either the Pet Sounds one or the Smile one that he yeah, did yeah. in the middle of the two thousands, sir. So yeah, we sort of have followed them a wee bit. But those the, those two musicians in Belfast were mental about them. And uh, looking back, the tune, all the big Beach Boys tunes, like Caroline, no, wasn't indicative really of yeah. what I came to know as them. But it was the first one I heard. You want to dance uh, the Beach Boys? I actually thought you might have picked something like Caroline No, or you know something from Pet Sounds, or I thought about this, and and the, those are the fancy ones that yeah. that have a lot of the analysis. But you see, do you want to dance in that kind of 
mood. That's what got me in the heart. Like yeah. there's a joy there. Yeah. And that's that's what I, I first love, loved about the Beach Boys. Terrific. Uh, other pop music? Were you were you listening to anything else in the 1980s? Mm. Mid, I suppose we're talking mid to late 80s at this stage, are we? Well, no, 90s, really. 90s, I yeah. think when I was wishing for pop. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, some dance. Anything I could get, really. Mm. I remember Atlantic 252 was a radio station that we could find. Um, yeah, now I like Taylor Swift. <laughs> That's all right. So, back to the harp for now. Um, at at this early stage, you probably, or maybe you were, you probably weren't thinking about other things you could do with the music and other things you could do with the harp. And I'm thinking of what you do now. Um, was there any sign of that back then, listening to forms of music that might have led you down that road of uh, experimenting with sound and with technology and all the rest of it? I do remember being really interested in the equipment. Um, it started at a harp orchestra concert. We we played in some really big halls at the time, and and like the Birmingham Symphony, it was really big. And so we had an engineer, and every one of those harps had a two piece pickup on them. And the engineer at the time would go through each harp player, and you'd have to play solo, and he would then, you know, crank the game, and suddenly what was in your instrument at your ear would expand into this huge hall. Mm-hmm. And the change in the sound from your instrument to the hall was a change that I just loved. Hearing that from stage, hearing your your music go out and become much bigger and the, the sound of it change as it was amplified. So that just made me really interested in sound engineering. And I didn't, didn't know at the time that it's something I could do. I had no way into it. I uh, studied music for GCSE and A-level and at that time you could pick one module and not all schools were able to do it because you needed the equipment and things. So where it was possible for me to pick a module, I did. And then I got the work experience and I was doing science A-levels, so physics, chemistry, maths and music. And with those A-levels, the school would kind of encourage you to get work experience at a hospital or or somewhere that would maybe fit with your subject choices and I thought to myself like I'm doing all right in these subjects if I want to become a doctor I could apply for it and then you'd hopefully end up in the hospital whereas this is the only week I'm going to get out of school to go into a recording studio Mm -hmm. so to my career teacher's dismay I was like I'm going to go to a recording studio for this week and they were like would you not go into the royal or Mm -hmm. and I said I knew that if I wanted to go do that, I would likely be able to later. Mm-hmm. And this was the only pass I was going to get. So I wrote round ra- a few and I didn't really get much joy at all. And eventually I tracked down uh, Daddy, knew Neil Martin. I think he taught him in St Mary's. And he knew that he played the m- music. So I remember having a phone call with Neil when I was about 16 and he was in Scotland at the time. And I said, do you know any recording studio we could go to? And he put me on to Mud Wallace, who ran a studio in Randallstown. I remember Mud. Yeah, so I during that week, all my friends had to be, it was this real big thing in school, like what time do you have to be in for? And he's like, oh, I have to be in to meet the head of human resources at 8am and I better get up half an hour earlier and whatever. So I was on the phone to Mud. I was like, what time do you want me to be in for? I was super keen. And he goes, gobble. 
we're not going to be up till one. So, I mean, don't come before two. So I was thinking, well, what am I going to supposed to do for the morning? I had the morning off school then, and then I had to get the bus up to Randallstown. It was arriving at two, but the last bus down from Randallstown was in at half six. So I was only getting a four-hour day in this, and Mud was only kind of cranking into work <laughs> at two. So it was a wee bit kind of like, I'm raring to go at eight. There was no recording studio was going to be raring to go at eight. So I just stood there coiling cables until something was happening and, you know, tidying up the studio and bringing the cups out and trying to be useful but not really having a clue. It was just very funny. Well, you did it. You know, that's the, that's, that's, that's the lesson there, isn't it? You, you went for that against, against advice. Did you want to take that further then and, and, and study at a higher level uh, in music? Yeah, I did, but I didn't really think it was realistic, um, just in terms of financing what was going to have to be on my own. Mm. And when I look at my UCAS form now, it was two physics courses and four sound engineering. So really? at the time, I really didn't think that's what I was going to do, but there must have been something just trying to keep it in there. Um, either way, I went for the physics and... Did three years of that, found it really fascinating, uh, loved it f- from an interest point of view. Where did you go? I went to Cambridge, uh, did astrophysics there. and <laughs> As you do. <laughs> uh, Very casual, I went to Cambridge and did astrophysics. It was a really interesting place and there are lots of fascinating, really clever people there. Yeah. And so it was very inspiring. Not only that, but quite aside from the the topic or the the things I was studying, um, most people there are just always on. You know, if they're not doing their work that they're supposed to be there for, they're finding radio stations and learning four languages and taking, you know, hitchhiking to Africa. And there's there's just a lot going on. So add to that all the sort of ridiculous balls and things that you can go to and the the wonderful, some ways, (laughs) traditions. It's just a really interesting place. Did you get like a hundred A levels then? No, I got four. Four, four good ones. Four good ones. Honestly, yeah. And and in terms of going to Cambridge and studying astrophysics, and I'm not asking this because you're from West Belfast. So let me get that out of the road first of all, because I'm thinking of if I'd have gone there or any of my pals had gone there, I think we'd have had chips on our shoulder and would have felt a bit kind of oof, Cambridge, you know, these all these we'd, we would have we'd have. Had, preconceptions about what the people were like that they were all toffs that they were all this that and the other um did you how did you feel going to cambridge like the, a place with that kind of reputation did you feel did you feel up to it did you feel entitled to be there did you feel you had every right to be there all the rest of it but there's a few things about that one of them is that you kind of go from the place that you know and yeah. that was my home that, that, that my home was the place i knew and it was a place where you were always encouraged to make sure that you you tried to the best of your ability and that you were true to yourself. And so that was the place I was coming from. I also had two older sisters who were already who had already gone. Wow. I think, uh, yeah, and <laughs> and two more after me. And I think I think that my. Is your family in the Guinness Book of Records for several <laughs> things, I suspect? But I think it's probably a better question to ask my oldest sister. She mm. was the, the first one of us yeah, to go. Yeah, she broke the mould. Yeah. And so for yeah. for me, I had been to visit and I'd fallen in love with the architecture mm-hmm. and the choral music. Yeah. And 
but in saying that, when you're in a family of seven, you you try to find your own corner. Mm. And so I was very anxious not to do, study the same subject or, you know, to do the same things. Um, unbelievable. It's not, not unbelievable you went to Cambridge, but that the whole family went. Well, not the whole. Well, a lot. There's two didn't apply. <laughs> 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 yeah, your next your next choice, um, and Buhul Kail Dove, or Do, as we'd say in the north. Uh, a song, yeah, uh, from Eamon O'Fagan. Tell um, me about Eamon. Eamon is a singer, uh, one of the best voices I've ever heard, and he died a few years ago. He's someone that I uh, had the privilege of playing a lot of music with and learned a lot from, and. He could harmonise like no one I've ever met. It was just stuck in him. Like, if you ever had to go on a wee road trip with Eamon and he was singing along, usually the lyric, actually, and he'd be singing to a song that we knew, but he'd be singing in harmony. And I used to just marvel at him. And he would say, do you know how annoying it is sometimes, though? Only to hear the harmony and not to be able to remember the tune. Um, But a gorgeous, gorgeous voice. Eamon O'Fuegon there and then Buhul Kail Do, the choice of Una Monaghan is with me in studio picking all the music tonight. We were talking so much, we still haven't got out of your childhood really at this point, Una, but that's fine. Well, we did, we got you to Cambridge. And um, Can I just say before we go? Yeah. That song, it's also a, a choice because it's one my granddad used to sing. He he worked in the shipyards and he taught himself Irish in the 30s and he, he was in the Clunard. And apparently they used to have these Iha Arnulds, which I knew nothing about because I was long before I was born. But apparently that was the song Granda sang. You know, everyone had their piece. Wow. There's a, just listening to you talking about Belfast. And I mean, I haven't been there. I've lived there in a long, long time and I don't know how it's changed really. But there would have been young people who lived uh, say in Andytown, where you where you grew up, who wouldn't have known the way around the city centre? No, I mean, I don't... Literally like, wouldn't. Getting from A to B there is <laughs> normally a bit wobbly for me because yeah. we... You weren't going to bring a load of kids into the city centre unless you had to get something mm-hmm. or you had to bring them. So, yeah, I, I only really learnt about certain parts of the city when I came home after university. Um, I was in Sark in the Sonic Arts Centre which had opened the year before um, I had just spent the three years doing physics found it really tough and thought right you know what I'm taking a year for myself here because all my friends from school had been largely at Queen's having great crack and I'd spent most of my Saturdays in lectures and thought you know what I'm going home I'm going to Queen's and I'm going to enjoy a year of studying Sonic Arts for me mm-hmm. and I fully expected after that you know, to go and do something else that was, as I, I thought, maybe a bit more stable or, or sensible. But you seem to be someone, you're not someone who didn't want to leave the community and want and was only happy within it. And you're not someone who was like, oh, I really want to get away. No, you, and you I've seem met, to be somewhere in the middle of those two, you know. 
I'm really happy I'm somewhere in the middle because I've I've met people who just said to me, even when I was in England, who said, "Oh, I just got out of Belfast," yeah, and that will have been dependent on every person's own circumstance. Yeah. You know, there are people who needed to get out of Belfast mm-hmm. and brilliant, and and there are people who who for whatever reason managed not to see beyond that. Um, who, who again, for whatever reason and whatever happened to them, saw only what was going on, and and that in its way can be very damaging too. Um, and I'm just grateful, I guess, that I'm I'm trying to find a way through the whole thing, like like everyone is. But boy, I mean, you really struck out, though. I mean, you went back to Cambridge then. Well, you, you Cambridge then Queens, then back to Cambridge as a fellow then. Yeah, uh, I just spent three years over there from 2016 to 19. After the and this time the it was PhD. this time it was music. Yeah, I was so happy to be, you know, in a subject academically that I didn't think I would go that far in. Because after the sound art work, um, I was I started to well I had a great year at Queens in terms of all of the improvisation that was happening there. Moving on music used to run gigs there that could have been acoustic free improvisation or uh, electronic music or computer music. There was uh, acousmatic music. All sorts of things were going on in the Sonic Lab. And so that year was so formative for me. And after that, I worked in the Sonic Lab as a technical assistant in in the Sonic Arts Research Centre. And uh, Chris Corrigan, who's the technical manager there, um, brilliant sound engineer and a brilliant mentor taught me everything really that I wanted to know and it meant that I was listening to every gig really that came through the Sonic Lab which for that period of time was brilliant. And was it something you discovered there that led you to further studies at Cambridge? Was it something from there that you wanted to to bring into an academic context and research more? Yeah um, it it was where I learned to listen Right. and uh, it was where my knowledge of music was properly expanded like this is a story that I'm just thinking of now which it was really embarrassing at the time but in our first week or two we were introduced to the Sonic Lab which is this incredible cube of loudspeakers 48 channels you can have sound direct at you from all angles and uh, we were asked as the first module to bring in our own examples of listening you know, our own music, what music were we interested in to listen to on this amazing instrument of sound? And at the time, I was flat out in the Beach Boys. So didn't I walk into a serious academic experimental music institution and hand them Beach Boys CD? Quite at the right. time, I was mortified. Yeah, right. But people were coming in with, you know, Alvin Lucier. And, and later I learned about those artists. But at the time, yeah, I was a lot less fancy. Your next choice is uh, Chris Cutler and Fred Firth. Yeah, and that's from this time. Yeah, um, They did a gig in Sonorities in 2006, brilliant festival, in the Crescent Arts Centre before it was done up, and I was just blown away. Here we go.
Chris Cutler there and Fred Frith. Uh, Washington is the piece, the choice of Una Monaghan, who's with me in studio. I'm just thinking, Una, when you started to listen to this kind of music, which on the face of it seems a million miles away from playing Irish tunes on the harp, um, did you did you see that there was a way of combining these or did you think, right, did you sort of drop the traditional music for a while and throw yourself into this fully as a separate kind of a thing? I was doing them, but in parallel. Mm. They didn't mix for the first while. Um, I didn't stop either, but I didn't quite know how to combine them. Because when I was starting to hear that music, I was starting to learn about improvisation, and I was really just trying to work out how to do that as a musician and what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do... Something I think a lot about now is is how musicians approach improvisation based on what their previous training has been. And I'm really interested in that in terms of the Irish traditional musician because, uh, yeah, not to, not to speak for everyone, but my experience of it has been playing a lot of dance music, playing a lot of dance tunes, which have a really strong rhythm. They're normally quite a set length. They have repeats. And you learn, you kind of absorb a skeleton of, a tu- of mm. tunes and then you hang the notes on that skeleton. And if you're suddenly asked to take away the skeleton, the thing that is inherent in all or nearly all of the music that you've played for years and years before that, like where do you go? As, how do you become an improviser out of that structure? And it's one of the things that drives what I try and get computers to do is to bring me out of traditional music. Now I don't I don't mean to abandon it. I mean I'm quite aware of of the structure it's placed on me, but I also think that it's given me a, a real strong basis to be an improviser from. I was talking to Quivian O'Reilly recently and mm-hmm. you probably know him and he was he was talking about he he's not trying to break out of the tradition, he's trying to break out of himself. And and this technology and all the rest of them but rest of that helps them do that. Yeah, exactly. One of the reasons I didn't want to take physics much further is because I struggled to accept the approximations that were necessary to work through the problems. Mm. It's kind of weird because you're, you're supposed to question in science. I'm not saying that they don't question, but I'm saying that the type of questioning was hampering me studying physics and it doesn't hamper me studying music. Did you do quantum physics as well? I did a bit. It was more the bigger end of the scale because astro was bigger. (laughs) General relativity and things. But yeah, there was quantum physics in it too. I loved all of it. It's fascinating. And it did did affect the way I thought and it affected the way I logically moved through things. Mm. I think it makes me a good engineer because you you don't sort of run at engineering problems. If something's not working at the end of a signal chain, you you need to carefully go through to find out where... can Can it affect the way you go through a tune? The, the physics. Your knowledge of physics, yeah. I mean, it must. Mm. You, 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 you. Because you would have different ideas of the physical world that, that the rest of us would have, because we haven't gone into that territory, you know, about time and all the rest of it. Yeah, but I also don't know what I know. Mm. You know, I need to have be be explaining my approach to something to realise where it affects it. But yeah, it must. I think we need to take a break. <laughs> Um, just before that break, let's just uh, stay in Cambridge with uh, this. I'm one of the, I was in Cambridge once, not as a student. <laughs> I hasten to add. One of the things I loved about it was you'd, you'd be passing some building and there'd be 
there would be choral music and all at three o'clock in the in the day. Oh gorgeous! It kills me. Like you couldn't, and you just you'd be able to nip in and sit at the back of yeah. whatever chapel it was and get this world class choral music. And I mean, I can't really listen to it recorded most of the time because it hits you in the throat. Like yeah. And what do you want to hear? Uh, this is Allegri Miserere. Although I loved this before I got anywhere near Cambridge, I, I was always on at the. St Malachy's College to, to do this and they, they were saying when we get a soprano that can hit that top note we'll, we'll do it. So. And is this uh, the Choir of King's College singing it? I think it is. Allegri uh, Miserere. And that's Allegri's Miserere, King's College, Cambridge uh, Choir there, the choice of Una Monaghan, who's with me in the studio picking all the music. And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. John Kelly here until nine o'clock. Our guest tonight picking the music is Una Monaghan, who's a a harpist, composer and a sound artist. Uh, She's going to be taking part. In fact, we talk about it now, Una, uh, New Music Dublin, which is next weekend. And uh, I want to talk about your own project, Inarocht. Now, that's to do with solo. So tell me a little bit about about Inarocht. It's a collection for solo traditional musicians and computer. So it started whenever I was trying to combine computer music and traditional music as a harp player. And I would write pieces for harp and electronics. And then I wondered about expanding that out to write for other instruments. But I really wanted to do it. When you think about traditional musicians, you're not you're not really getting the the instrument there, mm. you're getting a person and that's a whole package. So when I wanted to add computer to those people, uh, I really thought about what kind of interaction they wanted, what kind of piece they wanted to to be involved in and what their approach was. And I would have ideas for themes for each of the pieces and then we'd talk to the person about it and we'd develop it based on how they responded to the computer patches that I'd made. And what's in that for the musician, do you think? Now, I'll talk about your ideas about it in a minute, but for the musician, because I'm looking at some of the people you've got involved here, and they're serious people. You've got Paddy Dlacken and Jack Talty and, and Sally Ogden-Canavoyne and various other people. I, I mean, Paddy Dlacken I know because he used to work here and I often used to talk to him about it. He worked with John Cage, for instance, so he's he's prepared to go places. What do you add to what he does? I think it's just any artist, if there's a way to express themselves then they're going to be interested in that. Mm-hmm. And I try to work with that. Like I arrive and I say, here's what I've got. Is that working for you? Are you feeling able to be creative in this environment? Are you are you down with the theme that we're getting across here? Do you like the melodies I've written? If you don't, we're going to change them. Um, I because also, of course I should point out, you've composed the pieces as well. It's not like Paddy plays a tune and you 
do something with it. It's not that. Well, yes, but we, we're working from a traditional musician, so the music itself. So if we take Patty's piece, for example, it's called Who Do You Play For? And I thought of it in terms of the traditional musician and all of the different contexts that they might be in. So uh, they might be playing for the president, they could be playing at their mommy's funeral the next day, they could be on national TV, they could be playing at an awful St. Patrick's Day festival, you know, to people who aren't listening. Mm -hmm. So there's just loads of contexts there. And someone like Paddy, who's been doing this his whole life, has been in every one of those mm -hmm. contexts. So he's playing, it's, it's very much about traditional music and how that has been across his life. So he's playing traditional tunes in, in this piece, but we also have poetry from Kieran Carson and from Cahill Sharkey. So I wrote a load of these statements, like play for the president, play for, you know, a function, play for the radio because you have to promote the show. All of these statements that are a real part of playing traditional music and any music. And then I rang Kieran Carson and I was like, putting together a piece of music. I've got all these statements. This is kind of what I'm thinking of. What do you, what do you think of the, the writing here? And he said, oh yeah, I've already done that. <laughs> and I thought it was really funny. Yeah. Uh, of course, it was in a passage in his work, Last Night's Fun. Yeah. So I got which him is a, to... Which is a great book, by the way. Brilliant book. Yeah. I got him to record that passage. And then I said to Patty, like, it's, it's daft to be writing this work uh, without referring to the lang language. So I'm going to have this translated in the Irish. Who do you think should do it for me? And he said, well, Cahill Sharkey. So I got in touch with him and then I, I, I got a phone call and I didn't recognise the voice. And he says, hi, Una, Shaw, Shaw Cahill and Shaw. And I says, great. And he said, I've finished what you asked me to do. And he starts reading and he hasn't actually translated the work. He's written a whole epic poem in Irish around this theme. So that really then shaped the composition. The first half of it does have those statements flying out at random from Kieran and from me. But Cahill's work, I, I kind of thought I should leave a bit more intact. This is going to seem like a terrible tease because we're not going to play it now because we don't have it. It hasn't <laughs> happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. But I, I should say, if you do want to hear uh, Anorak, which features Paddy Glack and Sally Odin Pauline Scanlon, Jack Talty and uh, Noreen McAllister, who's there on the sculpture, so, so sculpture and computer, how's that going to work? Uh, I've, I've worked with Noreen before uh, on a sound art piece where you approach the sculptures and and through capacitive sensing they, they triggered sound. So it was a way of bringing sound into a piece of visual art that wasn't moving. Um, but in this piece, the sculptures are going to be there in parallel. So there are five sculptures uh, to complement the interact. They're not going to be making noise. They're going to be part of the, the visual work. And I suppose that's where the term new music becomes useful because there's no there's no name for what, what you're doing, is there? No, well, I mean, it's an amalgamation of lots of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess that's, anyone who hears it might have a different name for it, which is great. Yeah, OK. <laughs> so New Music Dublin uh, 2020 is, is next weekend. We put all the details of, of your event and everybody else's events uh, on the website, but uh, their own website is, is newmusicdublin.ie. You'll find the full the full programme there. Um, Pauline Oliveros, can we maybe play her now? Because I presume this is one of the people that you would have been inspired by yeah. in terms of the sort of work she got up to. Yeah, um, she visited Sark a few times while I was there and I was able to hear her music. I was able to participate in one of her deep listening sessions. Um, 
She's what, a, what, just explain a deep listening session. What's that? It's a way of listening that she pioneered and developed. And um, it can be done alone, but I, she, she led one of these sessions with a whole group of people. And she uses different techniques to deepen your listening. Uh, and it was great to do that with her. Um, I also have one of her books, which is a collection of her text-based scores, which are uh, pieces for improvisation either within groups or as a soloist, and and also ways of listening. So uh, it's a book that I refer to again and again to help me play music, to help me listen. Um, and yeah, I, it's just someone I really admire and a real pioneer. Music there from Pauline Oliveros, Bye Bye Butterfly, the choice of Una Monaghan, who's with me in studio. She, as you said, real pioneer, was doing this a long, long time ago. Yeah, and in in many ways on her own. Mm -hmm. In some of the contexts, the only woman, too. Mm -hmm. So uh, a really brilliant and a really lovely person. Now, for you, uh, if you could leave aside the fact that you're involved in making this kind of music and you're curious about how, how she's done it, and what machine she's using and so on. As a listening experience, um, there may be times you'll want to listen to that and there'll be times it's the last thing you want to hear. Yeah. But that's okay, isn't it? Totally. Um, I I love lots of music, but that's not to say I love it every day. Like I, uh, my partner listens to a lot more music than me. I've really struggled to make time to listen to music, mostly because I'm, I'm trying to do it for a start. But secondly... When I'm listening to music, it's it's something that's really active and something that sets my head going. And so there are times I don't want to do that. And I, I do think his uh, his approach to music has really been, in some ways, restricted by having to live with me. Because <laughs> some days I just don't want to hear. But then are you not the kind of person, you know, when you think about John Cage and others, who I'm sure you've studied uh, intently, even in silence, are you not then listening to distant voices and, and starting to enjoy the sound of passing cars and alarms going off? Yeah, I mean, I, I made a new version of uh, Roratorio in 2012 where I spent a year walking around with a recording device because I had a list of pieces of, of recordings that I had to collect for this new piece. And when you are switched on for a year with a mental list of sounds you need to collect and you're going through your life checking off all the time if that sound is happening because you need to grab it, you do get to a point where it's normal to be listening to every noise. Mm. Um, there's a lot of real, actual sound-based noise, but there's also a lot of mental noise and it's very hard to get quiet and I do safeguard it a lot of the time. <laughs> I heard uh, conversations between John Cage and uh, Martin Feldman talking about I love those conversations like I have a few books yeah. like that where it's conversations between two yeah. people and they're some of the most fascinating ways of getting information well you enjoy these ones they're online mm. and and 
they're talking about, Martin Feldman is complaining about the amount of transistor radios on the beach. So this is... It's, it's kind of, <laughs> Same it, back in the day. Well, it dates it, you know, and... Uh, presumably Coney Island or somewhere, and just all these transistor radios playing all this music at the same time in the racket. And John Cage just thinks it's brilliant. He loves it. And he said that uh, he wrote a piece for radio. Mm-hmm. So now when he goes to the beach, he listens and he thinks they're just playing my piece. So, you know, you can... Grand, do, but I, I bet when he wanted it quiet, <laughs> I, I bet that does not translate to every single transistor radio we heard he loved. Do you know what I've taken to doing now is carrying about a wee tiny set of earbuds that if someone's beside me on a trip or on a mode of transport is listening to their phone or whatever, I'll just silently say, here, do you want them? Because <laughs> I, I once sat in the plane where a child had frozen on repeat and I'm telling you, 20 times. And I, I just, um, seriously, I did, I did find it really hard. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> your, next, your next choice is, uh, is Sean Arreda. Inevitable that he would turn up, I suspect, in your, in your listening choices. What would you like to hear? Yeah, um, this is a, a section of Misha Era. And I mean, it's just beautiful for loads of reasons. And it does get me in the heart. And I, I wonder about why it does, you know, because the melodies that he's used are, of course, derived from many tunes that we would know. Some some would be called rebel songs, and um, and and you do wonder what part of it is getting you in the heart. Is it the joy of an orchestra, or is it what that means, the cheer gra? Uh, I realised later on when my brother, my brother's a bassoonist, and. When he was playing professionally in orchestras then, I realised that my choice to go with harp and not violin in a way meant that I wasn't really going to be playing in orchestras. And it struck me that that was something, a real loss that I've had. And so I just love the orchestra. Music from uh, Misha Era from Sean Areda. Una Monaghan with me in studio there. Una, you got very moved listening to that. Orchestra just does it to you. <laughs> it really does. Um, and I think it's partly because I can't play in it. You know, I, I, it, it's the richness of the sound as well. Um, and the might of it. I, I just love orchestra work. You've said heart a couple of times. It gets you in the heart. And I suppose there's there would be a perception then that someone working with uh, computers and machines and all the rest of it would be would be less soulful, have less heart. Do you know what I mean? That it, like people thought, you know, craft work were kind of you know uh, uh, you know mechanical, and in fact, you know, the, the music is very danceable and quite soulful, and I can't not sure why. So it, it's it's not necessarily the case that someone like you is into machines. It doesn't therefore follow that you are a machine. No, there has to be heart in everything that I'm trying to do with the computer. Has to be. You're trying to make a connection with you, firstly, the musician, and then you're trying to make a connection with other people. And it's, I'm just trying to get things that'll help me do that. And 
aren't there other circumstances where you would need to be careful that machines get in the way of that? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I did a project a couple of years ago with people who were working in AI. And one of the pieces for Interact features this. And it was a recurrent neural network that had been trained on over 23,000 tunes, traditional music that is uploaded to the session.org. So it's a website where all these tunes are notated. And the computer learns from all of this data and it then spits out its own tunes. So given the amount of tunes up on the session.org, it's done a pretty good learning process through all of that. And the tunes that it spits out are, in some cases, pretty close to traditional music. And so this piece has three of those tunes that are computer-generated trap music. But when I described it, this project to traditional musicians, I was struck by their unease. Mm. And it's interesting to me. I also understand it. Um, there are computers writing music now. And it's very interesting to think about. <laughs> and yet, you know, you got, you know, you, know you, you were very moved by the orchestra, which suggests the orchestra really, or, you know, a bunch of people playing acoustic instruments is, is the height of it. Yeah, and I wonder about unison there and about about strength in numbers. Mm. So many different people all playing together mm. and, and the concept of that and just the sound it produces. You've everything covered in there. Your next choice, Una, is Joni Mitchell. It is. When did you find Joni? I mean, fair play to Joni, obviously, but the first time I heard this song was being sung by Pauline Scanlon. Right. And... Uh, that's what introduced me to, to Case of You. And if I had Pauline singing it, now I'd probably put her in. Um, but a, a brilliant track. But yeah, I first heard it play, sung by Pauline and uh, Donna Hennessy. And, and would, you be a, would you be a lyrics person? Because great lyrics in this song. Great lyrics in this song. Uh, I don't think I'm one or the other lyrics or not. There mm. are some songs like this one where I know the lyrics backwards and I, and I love them. There's other songs where I'm not absorbing the lyrics and yeah. I couldn't tell you what they're about. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it just depends on the piece. Okay, Joni Mitchell, A Case of You. And that's Lau and Ghosts. Before that, Joni Mitchell, Case of You, the choice of Una Monaghan, who's with me in studio, uh, picking all the music tonight. La Tell me about Lau. Lau are a trio. Yeah. Um, they're based in Scotland. Chris Drever, Aidan O'Rourke and Martin Green. And they work across traditional and experimental music. Um, 
and they're one of the most in- inspirational artists I've I've met. They're all individually brilliant, and in that trio, they're amazing too. That song, as well, the theme and the topic of it, I find really important. But they've whole albums and live shows. When I go to the live shows, I must admit I'm I'm usually watching their engineer because <laughs> he, he looks like he's playing the piano. Yeah. Like there's so much going on, and they've they've beautiful lighting on stage. Uh, everything is done brilliantly, and yeah, listen to them. What's the experience like for you of doing sound engineering? How do you how do you approach it? Like a musician, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but but with the knowledge that it's all new at the end of the day yeah. <laughs> and the usual thing where if it's going right nobody notices and if it's going wrong you've got all the audience blaming you so I, I, I try to remember that it's about the musicians and if you don't have comfortable musicians you don't have a comfortable gig um, but I also love it like I just I engineer for mostly traditional and acoustic music or experimental and multi-channel and uh, I work as a live engineer so that thing where it's related to my interest in performance as well you know you've got an audience you've got connections things have to be immediate things have to be correct there has to be workarounds whereas with studio engineering you could time and money permitting be there forever tinkering with stuff mm-hmm. whereas at eight o'clock the audience are coming in and the damn show has to be ready and I I love that so I suppose you know not everybody might be aware of the contribution a sound engineer makes during a gig because the assumption is you just make sure everybody gets heard and there's no feedback mm. but what you're talking about is really contributing to the sound in a very active way throughout the whole Throughout the whole show, yeah, you're working the whole night, but you're adding sounds as well. Sometimes you depends on the gig, yeah. Um, whether you're asked to be a creative sound engineer or whether you're asked to reproduce what they do. Well, what would the creative sound engineer do then? They might design a multi-channel um, rig. So I've just come off last year working uh, on Jennifer Walsh and Tim Morton's new opera, Time, 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 and that. There was a lot going on there. The, the musicians were in multiple locations. So you had four electronic musicians on stage and then four uh, acoustic ones within the audience. So if you have mics positioned in the room and you have up to 16 or 24 channel speaker array, then you have a bit more control over where those sounds are going mm. to be positioned and how they move within the piece. And for a long form piece like that over 90 minutes, you, they want the sounds to to change the location of where they're coming from. Yeah. So you get to be creative with what they're giving you. But then for a traditional gig, I, I work for some traditional bands too, and there the, the brief is different because they may rehearse and they may be most comfortable playing acoustically. So if their stage does not feel, if the balance of their monitors on stage is not optimal for them, mm. you know, they're not playing a piece of music that's written down. They're playing something from within. And if they're unhappy you're not going to get the music they want to make. So I I really think for the traditional musician that has come from an acoustic situation, you really have to work to get the acoustic sound right and the monitor mix right. That's been cracked now, though, hasn't it? People, that's that's doable. There, was, there were many years when it was very, very tricky, particularly at festivals and so on. It was very, very difficult for, the, for any kind of acoustic group. Yeah, it is definitely doable. 
still doesn't always happen though. Mm. Okay. <laughs> uh, your next choice, uh, Oysters Island. Yeah. That's uh, one of Donald's bands, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, one of the bands that I engineer for and just two great tunes. There's there's few things nicer than being at the back of a big hall list, listening to this. So who's in Usher's Island now? Remind me of the personnel. Uh, that is Andy Irvine, Donald Lonnie, Paddy Glacken, John Doyle and Mike McGoldrick. That's a good band. There you go, that's Usher's Island. Uh, Mickey Doherty's and Gananyam, the choice of Una Monaghan is with me in the studio. Una's part of the Dublin New Music Festival, which is happening this weekend with her own piece, uh, Inarocked, which features uh, Paddy, Paddy Glacken, who's one of the musicians there in Usher's Island, if I'm right. Yeah, Paddy's, yeah. Paddy's in Usher's Island, yeah. So, Una, we were talking about uh, sound engineering there, and in the course of it, you mentioned Jennifer Walsh. Tell me a little bit, because we're going to play her next, tell me a little bit about Jennifer Walsh, because... You're not entirely on your own in terms of doing what you do. There are these other musicians around who not everybody will know them, but they're they're there and they've been doing this work, doing their work for a long, long time. Yeah, and uh, and and so tell me about Jennifer in particular. Jennifer Walsh is a composer, and I first encountered her when I was working on my PhD. And I was trying to find out about previous occasions where people had combined electronic music and Irish traditional music. And Jennifer has a project called Asjach, um, which is a history of the Irish avant-garde. And she has a website and I, I looked this up and it, it, it is a, it's a really brilliant performance project and collection of, of imaginary yeah. histories of the Irish avant-garde but I was quite far into this before I clocked the word imaginary so I was really excited about all of these examples of experimental Irish traditional music which had been conceived by her and a lot of other artists that she works with so at the time I was furious because I'd spent days you know thinking oh this will be great and I can put this into the research and a few years later I was working on a piece at a performance as part of a moving on music gig and she was playing in the second half and so that was the first time I got to meet her. I met her at the bar and I said, you know how raging I was with you when I found out that. And so from then, um, I've grown to really respect her work. And and uh, I went to the Worlding recently at the Model in Sligo, which was a, a big, large-scale installation work of hers. Um, 13 Vices that we're going to hear was a work that she uh, did with Brian Irvine. And, and last year, I've been working with her on Time, Time, Time. And during that, I've been able to see more about her compositional process and about how she works with other artists, how she collaborates, how to be a composer in the way that she is, mm. how to be a champion of other artists, um, how to be great to work with. So musically, I find her really exciting, uh, really unique. And then as a person, I just find her a powerhouse and someone who is really supportive. Now, we can't play all of this because it's 15 minutes long, but this is from 13 Vices. Uh, Jennifer Walsh and Brian Irvine. In fact, current populations are healthy and at almost historic highs. Fact. The greenhouse effect is a natural and valuable phenomenon without which the planet would 
God, it's all happening there, isn't it? Uh, Una Monaghan with me in studio. Una, it's, it's interesting, though, yet that you've just chosen is Jennifer Walsh and Brian Irvin there from 13 Vices live. And yet, you know, when you listen to that, and that's, I suppose, it's for a lot of people listening, it's out there, it's avant-garde, it's, it's way out. And yet, you know, there were composers like Schoenberg and Webern and Alban Berg. And then when you hear the sax coming in, there was Coltrane and Ornette Coleman and all these people... Who were who were who were there a long, 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 long time ago? You know, that's yeah. not to take away from any of this. But what I'm saying is, there were these people who were so far ahead. It's kind of astonishing to think of that. Yeah, and we're all humans, and everything's always mixed up. Yeah. It's great. And again, that's music. As we were joking about it earlier, you might want to listen to it one day. You might want to hear it again for a long time, but that's okay. That's totally okay, and it can be exciting one day and a real headache the next. Yeah. Um, and again, a lot of these choices are based around live experiences. So yeah. I saw that piece in real life and that'll be different from hearing it recorded because you're there in the energy of it. And what she does there, it, again, if you haven't heard it before, it sounds bonkers, but if you're if you're in a room with it, as you say, the live experience is completely different. Yeah, still pretty bonkers, mm. but full of energy and excitement. Yeah, it's, 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 it's exciting as opposed to confusing. Yeah, and really uh, shows you what, what the voice can do, which we only really ever hear a fraction of yeah. in certain styles of music. I'd say you'd like to work with Jennifer, would you? Yeah, well, we, we have over the last year, um, but just as a just as an engineer. Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman. Now, this, this is confusing me because I know Harriet Tubman, the historical figure. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to listen to here? This is a trio uh, that I met last year uh, and... They are J.T. Lewis on drums, Melvin Gibbs on bass, and Brandon Ross, who's a guitarist. Um, and a wonderful trio of musicians and people. Um, I learned a lot from them about how to collaborate. We did a project uh, in Kilkenny Arts Festival with Nile Valley in Norton Karen Casey last year. And so everyone brought their musical experience to it. And a few days of putting a piece together and you really learned how to be a calm musician with those people they're so skilled and then I was able a to a calm musician yeah as opposed to what well just it can be quite a frightening place sometimes and when you come together to make something um, there was a sense of calm confidence with them and as soon as they start playing you hear why but uh, really lovely people and I learned so much from them and I, I really like their music Harriet Tubman adapted Adapted from a band called Harriet Tubman, the choice of Una Monaghan, who's uh, with me in studio. We're just saying there, Una, nothing new under the sun. <laughs> that's that's jazz to my mind. Yeah, it's but, <laughs> wonderful. Now, when um, when you're across as many types of music as you are, and you work with musicians from different fields and all that, is that is that more difficult 
than it would be if you just had one thing, one specific small thing that you did and you concentrated on that forever. Because you have to spread yourself, I guess, you know? Yeah, I I think if it was just doing one thing, there's always the fear that if that thing doesn't work out, what do you do with your effort then? What mm. do you do with your emotional hole that you're left with? So sometimes, I mean, I, I'm interested, really interested in all the things I'm doing. But I think there's also a little drop of when you work towards something so hard, mm. you can't really afford to go up and up and up emotionally and then it be the only thing there is, mm. you know. Because then if you're trying to go out in that stage to do the thing, there's so much riding on it then that I find that's it's too miserable a pressure to be under. And so if you say, well, I'm going to do this gig and I'm putting as much as I can into it and it's a really kind of nervy, creative thing for me to be doing. But if it turns out it's shit, well, I've got this other gig with a collaborator next week and maybe mm. that'll be better and I, I, I probably won't cry for the whole week. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> So yeah. it's partly being interested in lots of stuff, but it's also keeping it so that you're you're not going to just crash. Because you see, there are some, there are some uh, artists, well, sometimes they are uh, uh, painters, but musicians I'm thinking of, who you could say if you were being cruel about them that they just repeat themselves or to be kinder you'd say they have a style this is their style and they stick to it yeah and i mean if if something's working mm. and if it's if it means something to an audience then why not why not? there is definitely space for being doing that the other thing is i i really respect musicians and artists who work on one thing I mean, there's only so many hours in the day. So by doing many things, there are some things I'm not doing. And I do think about that. You know, there are aspects of my work that I would be better at if I was only doing that. So you have to just pick the, the, the method that works for you. And this is currently what I'm interested in. But I do look at people who play one instrument six hours a day. Mm. And I think, wow, that is something I, I cannot do. <laughs> Kit Philippa? Yeah. That broken, broken to be rebuilt. Tell me about this. Kit Philippa is an artist, one of the artists where you go to see them and you're just struck by their music immediately. The amount of emotion that they put in to their work. Um, this piece, when I heard it first, I, I, it, it really hit me lyrically. Um, the way that it developed, so it starts out quite sparse and then the choices that they make with the instrumentation that they add later. Um, so I think you hear this person and you, you especially their live show again, um, not not so much the recorded versions, but when you hear this person live you, you're not you're changed. Kit Philippa broken to be rebuilt. Like the tide without its moon is a life without And that's Kit Philippa, Broken to Be Rebuilt. Uh, it comes from an EP, Broken to Be Rebuilt. The choice of Una Monaghan, who's with me tonight. Una, I really, really enjoyed talking to you tonight, but I just want, before you go, to mention again Inneracht, which is part of New Music Dublin. It's a world premiere, and it's on uh, Thursday the 27th, half past nine, at the National Concert Hall. 
and the performers you'll that will be yourself and you'll be playing the harp on the night yeah I will yeah it's uh, five pieces each with a different artist with computer so I'll do the harp and electronics one and how do you do that physically harp and computer do you just just keep the laptop by your side well there's different interaction for each one so yeah. with mine I, my piece has motion sensor uh, some of them have MIDI controllers some of them are controlled by the audio from the instrument so some of them you need to be closer to the computer than others and Paddy Glacken Saliogni Canavoin um, Pauline Scanlon Jack Talty on concertina and Noreen McAllister on uh, sculpture yeah where are the sculptures going to be the sculptures will be around the room Terrific. and they're in bronze wow Sounds amazing. And I should say too, you know, I remember there was a tribute night to Liam O'Flynn in the National Concert Hall and I was the MC and that's the night we announced the Liam O'Flynn Award and you won it, the first one. I did. Um, it's been a brilliant support for the work this year. It's enabled me to make this new music, so I've loved it. It's extraordinary what you're doing and I wish you every success with it and thank you so much, Una, for coming in. I enjoyed your musical choices and I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much, John. And uh, we'll see you on the 27th at the National Concert Hall, New Music Dublin, in Iraqt by Una Manon. Your last choice is what? Yes, uh, this is Lyra Pramuk. This is a, a person I met uh, in America. She is a trained opera singer and she's based at the minute in Berlin. She's a vocalist and an electronic musician. And I believe this track is only out a couple of days, so we'll be listening to it together. But I really respect her work, and I'm excited for her new album. It's just been released to Fountain. Luna, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.